Why hello there you. Before you get on and listen to this latest episode, I want to ask you a question. Do you have enough Myrtleade in your life? If the answer is no, did you know that you can get exclusive access to two whole previous seasons, dozens of exclusive episodes and a catalogue of minisodes? All you have to do is head on over to patreon.com forward slash Myrtleade spelt M-U-R-D-E-R-L-A-I-D-E and join our Patreon family. For as little as five bucks a month, you get more Myrtleade than your strange mind can handle. The more you pledge, the more you get. Seriously, guys, that is like a single cup of coffee per month and you help support me as a creator and you help keep this podcast an ad-free zone. Because, you know, there has to be one space in our lives that's ad-free. Okay, on with today's offering. and bum bum no go i promise it works now so if you were desperately trying sorry have another go at www.myrtleade.com and i promise not to fuck with it unsupervised in the future let's get down to business this podcast contains graphic depictions of violence salty language and poor grammar if you find at any stage that these things offend you please contact your sponsor and have a whinge because we sickos here just don't care Sources for today's episode are news.com.au, the Argus newspaper from the 7th of December 1923, the 12th of July 1923, the West Australian from December 6th 1923, fuck, I just love Trove, 
The Mosman Collective Archive, The Weekend Australian, The Barrier Minor from Broken Hill on the 7th of December 1923, The Southern Star on the 25th of July 1923, The Australian Government Children's Mortality and History page. So this episode is a patron request. Well, sort of. Mel, your wish is my demand. She asked me for book recommendations and I gave her one. Spun it back on me. If it's that good, well, I'll just wait for you to do an episode on it, she says. Well, let's have at it then, Mel. The process of birthing and mothering has changed so much in the last century. We have gone from childbirth being the number one cause of mortality in women to last year, the leading cause was dementia and Alzheimer's. From one extreme to the other, death due to the start of life and to a long, slow, tragic fade in your 80s and 90s. Childhood illnesses had mortality rates in children at some points in history being as high as one in three. In Australia, communicable diseases, dirty water and starvation being the highest causes of child deaths in the early 1900s. Now cancer, injury and nervous system illness battle it out for the top spot. Times, they are surely changing. There are, however, statistics that are not necessarily recorded in our history a hugely overlooked portion of child deaths. In the early part of the 20th century, there were possibly millions of unrecorded infanticides. This is a basic term used when one kills one's own child. No birth control and the combination of the Judeo-Christian ethic system in our Western culture looked down on unwed mothers and there was a serious lack of welfare for them and their children. By 1923, the murder of babies had become commonplace in Australia. Well, not just Australia. As a child, I knew an old German watchmaker. His name was Frank. And funnily enough, in our tiny town, he was just known as Watchmaker Frank. He told me a story when I was a teenager that stuck with me and probably will for the rest of my life. When he was a young boy, possibly around eight in post-war Germany, his mother gave birth in her bedroom to what he believes was his only sister. She was attended by a nun and the woman next door. After she gave birth, there was silence. Frank had expected to hear a baby cry like he had with his little brother, who was currently playing on the floor under the table near him. The women attending to his mum simply said that the baby had died. The child was quickly taken out the back into their freezing winter yard. Frank sat at the table and said that the nun took a big bowl past him and he saw his sister kicking her feet. When she came back, the baby was still pale blue and washed. They wrapped it on the kitchen table in front of him and took it to his mum. Frank believed until his dying day that the nun had killed the baby. There was something wrong with it and his poor rural family in a war-ravaged poor country would never have had the money or the resources to care for her. That nun did what she saw as a kindness. As a young adult he took note that not a single disabled baby had been born in his village in an around a 20-year span. Before he emigrated to Australia, he said the only disabled person he had known was a child who was injured in a riding accident and lost a leg. He also felt that the only reason these kids didn't make it past that nun. She was a midwife who attended all the births in the district. Infanticide has been a means of population control for the poor for eons. Like it or not, the evidence is there. With a simple trove search, I found no less than eight cases in Sydney newspaper 
in Sydney newspapers of abandoned dead babies from August to November in the year of 1923. Can you imagine that? Eight cases of dead babies found in just over two months in one city. In most cases, the mothers are never found. Those that are found are distinctly working class or below. The understanding that many of these babies were illegitimate was universal. One particularly disturbing case of a mentally impaired maid giving birth alone in an outhouse and then suffocating her baby with sawdust. Another of multiple dead babies wrapped in newspaper shawls, left in bags, abandoned on train tracks or near train stations are all over the Sydney newspapers of the decade. We must conclude that this was occurring on a national and a global scale. The lower classes were just surviving and in many cases an extra mouth to feed would sink them. Illegitimacy, or as we call it today, just having a fucking child, was a great shame in the 1920s to the mother, her family, and was a lifelong black mark to the child, and it curbed their potential. Illegitimate people found it difficult to get jobs, find partners, and do pretty basic things. Their life was literally goddamned before it began. The stigma could hang for generations. The end of the First World War saw the first stages of a sexual revolution. Women began to drink, be seen out publicly alone. For the first time, they were showing their ankles, for fuck's sake. However, as people began to have their first real reported de facto relationships, illegitimate children were often the result. Without the legal binds of marriage, many women were literally left holding the baby. This is one such story. This is not just a story of infanticide, however. This is a story of poverty, desperation, and the friendships that only women can have when times are their toughest. This is the story of three-week-old baby Josephine Boyd, dubbed by the press of the day as the suitcase baby. source for today's episode is the book I recommended to Mel, the amazing in-depth look into this case and the world surrounding it. And it is called The Suitcase Baby by Tanya Brotherton. And it is my recommendation of the week. It is a truly compelling, haunting read. Mel, you can now read it because I am giving you the cliff notes. In early November 1923, two women dressed in demure clothing of the day both with their obligatory hat, held hands as they boarded the Mosman Ferry in Sydney Harbour. Neither spoke. There was a solemn air about the two. Passers-by did not seek to disturb it. The pair were poor but clean and tidy. They looked to be in their late twenties. They were not accompanied by any man. In fact, no man was currently welcome in their timid little gloom. Men were what had got them in this dismal state in the first place. The shorter of the two, Sarah, who measured barely five foot, was a slight woman with a careworn face and dark, sad eyes, encircled by dark smudges, freckles spattered across her pale skin that marked her as a new Australian. Her dark brown hair 
with the occasional strand of silver sneaking loose of her oversized hat despite its strenuous tying up. She walked with a defeated stance, seeming smaller than her five foot. Her shoulders slumped and her face was grim and resolute. In her right hand she carried a beaten up little grey suitcase. Her other grasped the hand of the woman she walked with, her best friend Jean. Jean was a few inches taller than Sarah and dressed slightly more fashionable. In a flapper and with short dark hair, her pale blue eyes and stylish finger waves of the day tucked beneath her hat. One lazy eye and a broad attractive face, her profession as a flapper was well chosen. She stood with confidence, often pulling the smaller woman along a few paces, dragging her from her days. They boarded the ferry and stood along the deserted above deck against the side rails. The ferry slowly pulled out into the harbour and into the tides. The sun was setting and it soon became dark. The women stood silently in their little vigil near the rails as the ferry slipped across the harbour. Sarah gently lifted her little suitcase over the rail and dropped it into the seas, watching as it bobbed along and drifted out of sight into the night. The friends embraced and a tear escaped from the usually hard Jean, knowing deep inside that this would not be the end. And she was right, this was in fact only the beginning. The women had known each other for four years and were bonded tight in the way that only poverty and desperation can bond a pair. They met when Sarah had emigrated from Scotland to New Zealand. Jean was the more outgoing of the two. She liked to drink, she liked men. She was a flapper who wore pretty dresses and served scotch in cheap glasses to the working class sheps around the underground bars. She noticed a timid Sarah when she was applying for work in the kitchen. Sarah Boyd had a newborn son and presented herself as a widow. Truth be told, Sarah had never been married and she jumped on a ship to leave her home in Scotland to spare her son and her family of the shame of her action of merely having a child out of wedlock. She moved to the end of the earth in New Zealand and starting over had seemed to be the answer. She worked for some time in the kitchen scrubbing dishes with her baby curled up on the floor. And the drudgery of having a baby, her only solace was her new friend and confidant, Jean Oliver. Sarah eventually found better work sewing and seemed to be making a life for herself and for her son. Jean was pretty unhappily married and she loved to play with Sarah's bouncing baby boy, James, as he grew. The two became inseparable. When Sarah met a ship's captain and the pair began to date, Jean secretly hoped that her friend had finally met someone to find happiness and to find a father for the now three-year-old Jimmy. But as seamen do, the captain soon left her for the ocean and he never came back. Sarah found herself in the same situation that had left her, that had led to her leaving her last home. She was alone and pregnant. But this time she had Jean, who was planning to run out on her crappy husband anyway. So the pair made new plans. Why not just board another boat and off to Australia? Sydney was the land of opportunity. Jean got work quickly in the city and Sarah found a job at a farm some two hours north of Sydney. She went to work for a young farmer, Joseph Sharrock, Joseph Sharrock at his land at Kulnara near Wyong and he accepted her son and her condition. 
She cooked and cleaned for him, and as long as she did, she had room and food for her and her son and a meagre wage. Sarah had managed once again to land on her feet, and she was keeping her head above water, so to speak, but only just. The only problem was the coming baby. It threatened to sink her and Jimmy. Sunday the 17th of November 1923, a church picnic saw a scrabble of children flock like seagulls to the shore of Athol Beach in Sydney Harbour. The children dressed in their Sunday best hiked linen and lace dresses over their knees. Boys discarded polished boots and socks on the shore as they descended into childish beach play. The picturesque strip of beige sand and scrubby dunes had turned on the weather for the youngsters as they played and investigated glancing up the cliff to the rear of Taronga Park Zoo when the occasional lion's roar or elephant's trumpet caught their ears on a light summer breeze. The city can be seen around the gentle curve of the harbour. Two little boys with their pants high and their socks off sitting on rocks explored the sandy shore apart from the other kids. A little grey beaten suitcase the size of an overnight bag bobbed on the shoreline beckoning the boys. William Lodder, a primary school boy from Dunnymore, was the one who decided to pop the latches, curious to the contents of their mystery item, delivered to them by the sea. Was it sunken pirate treasure, floated to the surface just for them? He recoiled at the putrid stench that came from the case and saw that there was really no treasure. He looked inside and said what he saw was perhaps a bundle of ham, tied in fabric with a string offhand by the smell of it. He left the mystery for someone else, backed away and just left the case open on the shore. Twelve-year-old Eunice Clare was not one to be put off by the stench. She approached the mysterious package with all the bravado she could muster. Eunice picked up the little bundle in front of the other children who'd circled around. It was wrapped in a sodden towel. She untied the string with her deft little hands. Eunice looked on in fascination as she revealed a tiny human in the bundle. Tiny, newborn, baby girl. An adult from the party came upon the kids and their gruesome treasure and rushed to the ferry station to fetch the police. An officer came and collected their little bundle, sealed her back in the little suitcase ship and boarded the ferry back to the city. The uniformed officer carried his secret little bundle straight to the coroner's office and handed her over inside her little boat and filled out the paperwork on the children and the manner of the child's discovery. An article from the Argus on Friday the 7th of December 1923. Dr Strathford is the coroner who did the autopsy. It is noted that the baby girl still had a cord wrapped tightly around her neck. There was a white muslin embroidered handkerchief stuffed a significant way down the baby's windpipe. Her cause of death was suffocation. She was noted to be about a month old. She was plump and she was healthy. Interestingly of note, 
The article directly under this in the Argus is titled Infant's Body Found in Lane. It is the story of a primary schooler who cut through a lane on his way to school and found the body of a newborn baby wrapped in newspapers. The paper states, quote, There are bruises on the body and other marks suggestive of violence. The opinion was formed that the child had been strangled, end quote. That handkerchief down the baby's windpipe was Sarah Boyd's undoing. On the back was a printed laundry number, after which police went to the laundry, the biggest in Sydney. They had a name and address of the owner of that handkerchief, Jean Oliver. She was staying at a hotel. Police confronted Jean at her apartment and took her to the police station, where she immediately acted pretty suspicious. Before they had mentioned a body, she said that she had lent the hanky to someone, but she definitely didn't kill her baby. Jean was not a criminal mastermind. She gave police the address and in the wee hours of the morning went to the little farmhouse two hours north of Sydney and confronted a timid Sarah Boyd. Sergeant Green and Sergeant Alchin approached Sarah after her employer had let them in the house. Alchin asked Sarah what she had done with her baby. She stared at him blankly and stated, quote, I strangled it. Sarah apologised to Joe as she was taken to the police station. Police removed Jimmy much to Joe's distress. He said he would keep her son until Sarah came back. But the police took him and he went into state care. In Joe's statement, he told police that he and Sarah had talked the week of the baby's birth and decided together that she would go to Sydney and put the baby into care. He said after the birth of the little girl, she had named Josephine, obviously after him. She was often crying and depressed. She was withdrawn and he could tell she did not want to give up the child. He also said she had written to Josephine's father in New Zealand, Edward Jackson, many times before and after the birth, explaining that she was destitute and she never received a reply. Sarah Boyd and Jean Oliver were originally both charged with murder, but after the pair gave full confessions, Jean's charges were downgraded to helping dispose of a body. Jean's confession speaks of the women's intimate and unshakable bond. She loved Sarah. On the morning that the baby was murdered, Jean went shopping. When she returned in the afternoon, Sarah was sitting silently in a chair with baby Josephine on her lap. The baby had a cord around its neck and another around its feet. The child's face was black. Sarah admitted that she had murdered the baby and after refusing to go to police... Sarah and Jean came up with a solution. They went down to the shore with the baby in the little suitcase, having only wrapped her in a towel and not touching her after that. They got a large rock, one they thought would sink the case, and they put it in with the baby. They boarded the ferry and they set little Josephine adrift in her little boat, but it did not sink. She was carried across the waves and through the tides, landing safely on a beach just in time for a little church picnic. Both women were convicted in Supreme Court. Jean received a 12-month sentence and Sarah Boyd received the death sentence by hanging. The women of Sydney went into uproar. They rallied behind Sarah Boyd, who had become the poster woman for the repression of her gender and the children born to the women of the lower classes. There was a huge movement. Vigils were held. Money was raised for Jimmy's care. Eventually... A successful petition to have Sarah released was tabled. By this time, she'd spent nearly five years in prison. When Sarah got Jimmy back, he had not seen her 
since he was four. With the funds raised, she took him back to Scotland. Josephine is buried in Sydney. And that is the story of the three weeks of life granted to baby Josephine Boyd, the suitcase baby. Sleep with one eye open and call the cops on all your dodgy neighbours. Hello again, it's me, and can I ask you a favour? If you liked this episode of Murderlade or any previous episodes, please take a moment to rate and review. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts or alternately, head on over to Facebook and rate the show at the Murderlade the Podcast page. Every rate and review helps other strange ones find us and join the family. Oh yeah, and I totally mean that in a creepy Manson family or the Aussie cult, the family kind of way. Thanks for listening.